0: Verses We teach through tough verses, and so Paul is offering here in chapter 6 a strong warning, and the reason there is a strong warning in Scripture, even though we recoil back from any strong language, the reason there's a strong warning here in chapter 6 is real simple. It's because we need it. In other words, what he's saying is, hey, this is a common stumbling block, uh, both in the Corinth church and still for Christians today. And so I'm going to offer a word of warning because this is an area that we need to heed God's warnings on. And so based on these uh, verses, uh, there is a great temptation uh, to resist letting anyone tell us who we should and should not form our deepest relationships with. Let me do a little scientific survey. a general rule of thumb. How many of you would raise your hand and say, I don't like being told what to do? Would you just raise your hand up? Some of you are pointing to the people next to you. I don't know what that means. Prayer request, call for help, right? But here's the reality. I'm the same way. I don't like being told what to do, even when it's God himself speaking through the inspired word, there is a natural sin nature in me that wants to resist that. And knowing that, he says, hey, here's an area where you're going to have to heed my warning when it comes to our deepest intimate relationships with other people, all right? So, let's pick up the text in chapter 6, and the flow of thought goes all the way down through 7, 1 this morning, even though there's a chapter break, those were not in the original. So, we're going to look first off at verses 14 through 16 to get us started this morning. Verse 14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And so if you haven't been with us, here's the cliff notes. We've been walking through the book of 2 Corinthians. And Paul is writing this letter, uh, often of correction, to the believers at the church at Corinth. And he had helped start that church a few years ago. And as he departed to go plant another church, they started to drift in regards to their commitments. And so Paul's writing this. And one of the things they would do over and over is they began to let the culture outside the church influence what was taking place in the church and that fellowship of believers. And apparently, one of the areas where that was happening and they were being negatively affected was in this uh, critical arena of their deepest relationships. And so they must have been not heeding his counsel. So he says, reminder, uh, here's some truth about what the Scripture teaches about our deepest, most intimate relationships. And so Paul is emphasizing that they should be moving towards God, uh, which is the result of moving uh, away from the world. And he says, whether you want to be honest about it or not, your relationships that you're forming with those who don't know Christ and your deepest relationship, they're having an impact on you. And it's not for Christ. It's in the other direction, And so, uh, basically here I want to see in Scripture, uh, there are two choices that He has for us uh, in this passage, and uh, your life is basically the sum total of all your choices mixed in with God's providence. And so, your choices actually form who you are uh, in the economy of God, and so the first warning that comes to relationships is simply this, is you should choose wisely. If I could summarize all that He's teaching and Verses 14, verse 15, and verse 16, down into a simple two-word summary, uh, that would be it. It would be to choose wisely. And the reason this warning is written to both the uh, uh, Corinthians church and then extends to us today is because that old cliche is actually true. Many of you have heard this before. Show me your closest friends and I'll show you your future. In other words, who are you in deep relationships with? They have a tremendous shaping aspect on our lives and now here's the reality our prideful hearts want to desperately believe that we're too smart and we're too strong to be negatively influenced by those around us that's a part of our fallen nature that Christ has to rescue us from uh, when he saves us and one of the ways that Christ rescues us is offering us the counsel of God's word now I don't know if you've learned this or not in life did you know this you don't have to learn everything uh, through painful consequences. Did you know that? That God, in His inspired, infallible, inerrant, sufficient Word, offers us wisdom on the front end. And when it comes to our deepest relationships, He says, hey, here's some wisdom on the front end. If you'll heed this, you'll avoid the pain of consequences on the back end. And listen to what His perfect Word says regarding the power of relationships and specifically unwise relationships write these verses down i'm going to give you two in addition to this text you should write these down look them up later first corinthians fifteen thirty three. do not be deceived bad company corrupts good character do you know why that verse starts off with do not be deceived because we're often deceived by that principle right we think that our good character, that our good commitment to Christ has the power and the ability to influence someone else's heart for Jesus Christ when only Christ Himself can change a person's heart. And so we're often deceived by that. So the verse starts off and says, hey, don't be deceived. This is how this exchange works. Bad company corrupts good character. Those not pursuing Christ easily pull those away who want to pursue Christ. So 1 Corinthians 1533. Here's one out of Proverbs. Write this down. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20. Listen to it. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. And apparently, according to verses 14, 15, and 16, these Corinthian believers were disregarding all of that counsel. They thought they could associate with anyone, and it would not influence their walk with Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad we don't struggle with the antiquated problems of the Bible, amen? The crux of what this section of Scripture is teaching, us starts uh, in verse 14, and it builds from there, but in order to see that, we have to make plain and an odd statement uh, in the Bible, and it's this phrase, look back there at verse 14 uh, in the ESV and other translations, it says, don't be yoked with unbelievers. Now, that's an odd phrase, right? Now, many of you may not know this, but as a budding professional bodybuilder, I do know this. In body, I'm in the balking season right now, I just want to clear that up, all right? I haven't hit the summer cut yet. But in bodybuilding, yoked is when a person's physique is toned and muscular. It is a synonym uh, with swole, ripped, and jacked. All slang for a muscular, well-built person. Our staff prefers the term cunning hand. But yoked here is actually, in fact, not a bodybuilding illustration. It is here an agricultural illustration uh, of two people being bound together tightly in a intimate relationship the same way that oxes would be bound together into a plow. Uh, listen to the insight of these verses from uh, one author. He said this, here's the key to what not being yoked with unbelievers means. It means that the Christian is in process moving toward holiness. Thus, to be yoked with unbelievers is to be of one heart and mind with them, co-opted by their values that guide them, seduced by their commitments to various gods and lords, conformed to a view of things which dismisses absolute truth and moral absolutes. In life, you God is sovereign. God can providentially work in circumstances, but as a general rule of thumb, uh, the, the decisions that you make will form the course of your life should God choose not to intervene. And those decisions will determine the direction of your life. Some of those will be who you decide to marry or if you decide to marry. There's a shaping impact on your life. Uh, What career path you choose. What church you choose to uh, join and participate in has a shaping factor. And according to this passage and other Scripture we've looked at, uh, a huge decision is who you choose to form deep relationships with in your life. And the reason... Because your deepest relationships uh, will shape you powerfully. Now, if you're listening, say amen. Amen. According to Scripture, those verses I just read to you, and this passage here, the most common outcome is that the Christian is often influenced away from Christ by the non-Christian, not the other way around, according to the Scripture. The pure water becomes muddy water to use our opening illustration. And here's why. A non-believer doesn't have the spirit inside of them helping them to obey Christ. And so they can't influence us towards Christ because the spirit of Christ is not inside of them. But a believer still has their old nature and that old nature can still be tempted away from Christ. So the scales on the front end are already set against us in that relationship. Now, I can already hear the silent protests. How are non-Christians going to hear about Jesus if we avoid relationships with them and hang on to that thought because we're going to hit that head on in just a few moments, all right? But back to verse 14, where the clear statement is this, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Paul's painting a word picture here. And the word picture is a large ox and a small donkey working together. You know how that story plays out? The ox is large and powerful. But when it's hooked up to another animal that's not literally pulling its weight or often not pulling at all, what will happen is even though that ox is so strong, that that weaker, smaller animal will derail the whole plowing assignment because the ox will not drag the other animal along in order for the task at hand. And so what's he saying here? Don't miss this warning. What he's saying is a person through the Spirit-filled life, not your own strength, through the Spirit-filled life, can be as spiritually strong as an ox and yet still get dragged down by a person who does not possess Jesus Christ in their life. That's the illustration he's making here. And so what he's saying is, you may think, man, I'm so strong, my relationship with Christ, these deep relationships, they're not going to affect me even though they're not followers of Jesus Christ. And what he says is, that's not actually how this thing works. That the strongest of all animals will actually give up the pursuit of the plow rather than drag along the weaker animal. That's the warning that he's given here. And again, we're so deceived by this principle. Paul goes on to say, if you don't believe me, in verse 14, he goes on in verses 15 and 16 to further drive home his point and ask five rhetorical questions. Look at verses 15 and 16. He said, For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, pagan worship? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. I'll make my dwelling among them and walk with them. I'll be their God and they shall be my people. And so Paul is painting some very clear lines of division. He says these things are polar opposites. And one of the challenges of following Christ is that in the name of not being offensive, we don't put up any dividing lines at all. We don't put up any dividing lines about theology. We don't put up any dividing lines about relationship. But make no mistake, listen, there's only two roads according to the Bible. To quote the great prophets of old, there is a stairway to heaven and a highway to hell. Amen? That's it. Some of you didn't get that reference. You're not on the stairway to heaven if you don't know what that means, all right? Two ways of living. Two types of people in the Scripture, and Paul makes it crystal clear what that looks like through these contrasts. Righteousness, lawless, light, darkness, Christ, Belial, believer, unbeliever, temple of the living God, and given to idol worship. Now, sometimes when you study the Bible, you ever read the Bible, and you close it up, and you think to yourself, I have no idea what that means. You ever have that experience? I do, and I've got two degrees in theology. There are times I read something, and I close the Bible, and I think, Jesus... I don't know what you're talking I don't even know what this means yet right this is not one of those passages this is crystal clear black ink on white paper these are stark contrasts and so what he's saying here is as a Christian you may share some common interests or common personality traits with a person who's not a Christian, but at the core of your being, what you're living for, whose glory you're living for, what your motivation is, you could not be more polar opposite than a person who does not have a relationship with Christ, even if you've got the same sense of humor and the same hobbies and went to the same school. A non-believer is driven by finding pleasure and a believer is driven by pleasing Christ non-believer trusts their own wisdom and a believer should lean not unto their own understanding. A non-believer is looking for self-fulfillment or self-improvement and a follower of Christ is looking actually to deny themselves so that Christ may be exalted in their life. Now, if you're still listening, say amen. The Bible describes a follower of Jesus Christ in a couple of strange ways in Scripture. It talks about us being aliens and strangers and pilgrims here in this world. What he's saying is here, hey, basically, you're just passing through. This is all temporary. Your future home is in glory. Your citizenship, Paul says in Philippians, is in heaven. And so what does that actually mean in in this conversation? Here's what that means. I have more in common with a person living on the other side of the world who's a fellow Christian than I do with a non-Christian who lives in my own neighborhood according to Scripture. And that's why Paul's offering this warning in verse 14. He's clarifying. He said, just in case you're not convinced, verses 15 and 16, which forces us to look in the mirror and ask, what does this mean for my life? How does this actually play out. What do I do with Paul's commands to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, but yet God's given me a great commission. We say at the end of every week to go out into the world and share the gospel. How do I wrestle through all those things? Well, often, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, in the Christian life, we have this incredible propensity to take and make application on the extremes of the spectrum. Do you ever notice that? And so let me offer up a couple of mistakes we can make when you hear this principle being taught. Mistake number one is this, it's to confuse separation with isolation. Uh, we've homeschooled three out of our four kids for most of their uh, academic journey. And here's what I tell people all the time, homeschool is not right for every kid and it's not right for every family. And there are pros and cons just like every other educational choice uh, that you can make. But over the past several years of homeschooling, uh, let me tell you some observations that I have learned. Observation number one, uh, some of the sweetest kids we've ever encountered have been some homeschool kids. Uh, One of the pros of homeschool is it slows down the rapid pace at which kids are forced into scenarios and conversations prematurely. Observation number two, the reason some homeschool families choose that is because their children have yet to learn how to comb their hair. If you you homeschool, don't email me because you know it's right. The greatest, highest per capita concentration of bedhead is at a homeschool co-op. Write that down, all right? But observation number three, some families who homeschool confuse separation and isolation. They're not motivated by more time with their kids or more discipleship conversation, but instead they're motivated by fear. They operate with the mindset that their children's hearts are pure and need protected. When the Bible says our hearts are wicked and need transformed, and because they're operating with the wrong mindset, they often choose isolation uh, as as a choice instead of separation. Now, here's what else I've observed as a pastor. You don't have to homeschool a kid to confuse this principle. I've met all kinds of Christian families in all kinds of contexts who look at the call to separation and instead choose isolation from all these non Christian influences. We have Christian blue pages. We got Christian sports leagues. Some people only go to a Christian barber, shop at a Christian grocery store. I had a guy one time who said, I don't go to Kroger. Why? Because Kroger sells beer. He said, Where do you go? I said, I go to Kroger all the time. Fill in the blank, right? No. I've been gone for two weeks, so we're rusty. (laughs) You can't choose isolation and look at the life and model of Jesus. Scriptures, we see Him eating with tax collectors and Sinners, he spent some of the time with people who were vile and who reviled him. He did an attempt to love and invite them into new life with him. He befriended them without endorsing their values. And so we can't take the approach of, I'm never going to spend any time with people who don't know Christ. I'm never going to allow my kids around those kids. That would be an error. So that's mistake number one. But mistake number two is on the opposite end of the spectrum. It's to live as if there's no need to ever separate at all. It's to totally disregard the counsel of God's word in this area of relationships. That we can tear down all the walls and all the warnings here and associate with anyone. And it will not affect our walk with Christ to completely reject Paul's counsel. Now listen, if you're here and you're doing that, then whether you mean to or not, whether you want to or not, basically what you're saying is this, is when it comes to relationships, I, in fact, am wiser than God himself. That I can disregard all of his warnings, and I know better. This will not happen to me in these relationships. Now, if you like practical Bible teaching, just raise your hand. Would you identify that? Me too. All right? And so, what does this look like in, real life? How does this affect my actual relationships? Let me list a couple of environments. Number one is in church relationships. Now, this is not as obvious. Matter of fact, when you hear the phrase in verse 14, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers, most often what the application is, is about marriage. Now, let me ask you a question contextually. Is this a passage on marriage? No. No. So that's a secondary application, all right, we'll get to. This is a passage about people's relationships in the church with those outside the church. And so what's happening here uh, is that the Corinthians were being influenced by these super apostles that we'll meet later, and basically they're teaching another gospel, And instead of marking them as those who cause division and walking away from them, they just said, hey, let's just keep these relationships. We'll listen to that teacher. We'll listen to Paul's teaching. We'll listen to anybody. And he says, no, no, no. You should separate yourselves from those who are opposing the true gospel and promoting this other gospel. In the local church, this is where the issue of uh, church discipline comes in. Back in the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 5, there was a person who was involved in open, unrepentant, habitual sexual sin, and Paul said, looked at them and said, what are you doing? You're just letting this play out in front of you. You've not removed this person from your fellowship, and don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And don't you know that you're damaging the corporate witness of Christ to the unbelieving world around you? And so he says, Hey, take this person and move them outside the fellowship of the church. Why? Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so if someone is not teaching the true gospel, he says, There should be a dividing line in the church. We should separate ourselves from those. And so that's the primary context. We should treat them like unbelievers in that church discipline. Now, side note, we don't shun unbelievers, but we also aren't forming our deepest, intimate relationships uh, with them. And so that's the primary application here. But there's some secondary ones. And here's one I would offer up as well, uh, dating relationships. If you were to ask me and say, hey, you've been pastoring for a couple decades, pick an area or a topic where you've consistently counseled people, and they in turn have disregarded your counsel. This would be it right here. Uh, Lots of people are engaging in what's called missionary dating. You know what missionary dating is? I'm a Christian, I'm pursuing Christ, but I'm going to date this person who's either A, I'm not sure if they're pursuing Christ, or not pursuing them real hard, or they openly say, I actually don't belong to Jesus Christ, but I in fact am on a missionary journey. And I'm going to convert this person through this dating relationship. And praise God, they also happen to be attractive usually, right? (laughs) Funny how that works. Listen, write this down. Missionary dating, bad idea. Why? Because the verses we read earlier. Because bad company corrupts good character. Because he who walks with the wise himself will become wise, but he who keeps companion with fools will become foolish. And to reject Christ is a fool's endeavor because of what verses 14, 15, and 16 say in this passage. And so, if you believe that, you submit yourself under the authority of Scripture instead of consistently saying, I've heard this phrase, so many times over the years, particularly in dating relationships. And here's, what, here's how it goes. Well, pastor, I know what the Bible says, but... You know what you're really saying when you say that? Maybe you don't audibly say that, but your life reflects that. What you're saying is, I know what the Bible says, but it cannot be trusted in this particular area. And often what happens when it comes to dating is we allow our emotions to guide us, and not Scripture. We follow our hearts instead of actually believing that our hearts are wicked and sinful and deceitful. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. Now obviously, if this truth applies in the non-binding relationship of dating, it certainly applies to people engaged and people who plan to get married. So that is a faithful secondary application. Now, what if you're married, though, and your spouse is not a Christian? I've had people say this. I've had people say, hey, I'm going to get a divorce because uh, my spouse isn't pursuing Christ, and this is not a marriage made in heaven. I've had people tell me, I just married the wrong person, and I'm serving the Lord, and they're not serving the Lord. Listen, write this down. If you want to find out this morning, if you, in fact, marry the right person, get out your marriage license and see if they have the same last name as you. And if they do, you married the right person. And so you're saying, what do I do? All these verses, all this contrast, I'm trying to walk in the light and they're not pursuing Christ. And so listen, here's the good news. Maybe you became a Christian, you didn't heed the Bible's warnings and you married a non-Christian, thought you'd convert them to Christ and it's never happened. Why? Because you can't change anyone else's heart. Only Jesus can do that. Or maybe you got saved after you got married and they're in fact never got saved. And so you don't have to wonder what should you do. Listen, you don't even have to pray about it. Because the Bible says clearly what you should do. First Peter chapter three verses one and two. Likewise, wives, and this is interchangeable, it can be a wife and a husband here. Okay, listen. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, that they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, th- this is not, when he says don't say a word, By their, this is not counsel on how to deal with a sinning spouse. You just keep your mouth shut. That's how abuse happens. This is counsel on how to live with an unbelieving spouse. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, hey, you don't have to say a word. Did you know this? I don't know if you know this or not. And parents, you need to hear this, all right? You can't nag someone else into the kingdom of God. Did you know that? You know how many times over the years People's kids, adult kids show up on Easter and their mom drags them in front of the pastor. This is my kid. You'd never know it because they're never here. And I raised him better than that, didn't I? And the guy's 50 years old, scared of his mom. Amen. He's like, you know, and I just want to hug him. It's okay. You can't shame someone in the kingdom of God. You can't scold someone in the kingdom of God. You can't nag someone in the kingdom of God. But what he says here is, hey, if you're a believing spouse married to an unbelieving spouse, what you can do is this. You can have a powerful influence on that person's life. Not by your words, but by the life of change and transformation they're seeing be played out in this relationship. He says you should stay in that marriage And live in such a way that Christ is made attractive to your unbelieving spouse. That's what he says. We don't have time to develop every single thought. But this principle that he's teaching in verse 14 and further reinforcing in verses 15 and 16, uh, listen, that affects your business relationships. You say, how is that? Because if my sole motivation is to glorify God in every area of my life, I don't close the door on my business life. I say, hey, my business is an opportunity to glorify Christ in how I motivate through business. And these folks, they're not interested in motivating Christ because they don't know Christ. I'm not saying they're wrong, evil people. Listen, can we disagree with this? If you don't know Jesus Christ, you don't have a motivation to glorify Christ in a business endeavor. Can we agree with that? it actually would make no sense for a person to do that. So how does that affect your business relationships? How does that affect who you get advice from? Maybe you came to Christ and your whole family's unbelievers. And all of a sudden now you go, hey, what? Look, they're, not, they're not motivated by the same things I'm motivated. They're not living for the same things I'm living for. So what does that mean? Should I shun them? Of course not. Should I honor and respect them? Of course you should. But it may mean that I no longer go to them for counsel instead I go to some godly wise faithful Christians who are living for the same things that I'm living for so this principle don't just pigeonhole and say well this applies to marriage that's not even the context of this passage it filters through every area of your life and so here's the principle and then we'll move on and I want you I want you to listen are your deepest relationships moving you towards Christ or away from him? Now, not only is that hard to do because we're often deceived in thinking it won't affect me or I can change someone else's heart, but it actually gets harder. Because listen to how Paul counsels us, if in fact we have entered into wise or unwise deep relationships with someone else, all right? And so what does he say to do if that's the case? And listen, I'm not, this is hard, all right? So what's he say? Uh, second principle is choose to do the hard thing. Part of the evidence that you belong to the Father, that you're a son or daughter, is your willingness to obey Christ even when it costs you deeply. Now with that thought in mind, look at verse 17 down through verse, chapter 7, verse 1. What's he say verse 17? Therefore, In other words, if you're in this type of relationship, therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you, and I'll be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty, chapter seven, verse one, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now, in many of your Bibles, those verses there are in quotation marks. And the reason they're in quotation marks in the English Bible is because they're a du- direct quote from the Old Testament. And specifically, Isaiah chapter 52. In Isaiah chapter 52, the people of God, Israel, were leaving Babylon where they had been held captivity. They're returning back to their own land. And Paul's using that as a spiritual application. The Corinthian church and to us today to call them to spiritually separate themselves to God and from some of these other people. Now, let's just call this what it is. That's hard. That is hard to do when you've been in a deep relationship with someone else and to heed this counsel. But let me tell you how this works, and I'm not trying to soften this any morning, all right? right, Let me tell you how this works. Listen, if you start pursuing Christ passionately, relationships that will pull you away from Christ will start to weaken naturally. Because in your mind, what you think is, oh my goodness, I gotta leave the service today, have this ugly, awkward, unloving conversation with someone who's pulling me away from Christ. No, 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 listen, if you start pursuing Christ passionately, relationships that are pulling you away from Christ will start to weaken naturally. I got saved at 13, January the 29th of 1989. I didn't get serious about pursuing Jesus until I was 20. And in between that time period, I had a group of friends, about six or seven of us, uh, who were really close and hung out quite a bit. But when I started spending more time with Jesus, He changed my desires, which in turn led to a change of activity, which in turn led to a change of relationships. Not an ugly thing, just a different course of life that Christ has set the trajectory of our lives on Hear me again. This is not isolation from unbelievers. This is separation from complicity with and conformity to ungodliness. It's what we mean in the church when we say, hey, we're in the world. This is where we live temporarily, but we're not of the world. We don't subscribe to its values, and we don't form our deepest relationships with those who aren't pursuing Jesus Christ. If we're a follower of Jesus Christ, we're to influence culture as salt and light instead of letting culture influence us. There's constantly balancing act to model Jesus, who is a friend of sinners, without being a co-signers to sinful attitudes and actions. So there's some commands here. That's what they are. There's some commands here. What's he say? Look at verse 17 again. He says, go out from their midst, be separate from them, Touch no unclean thing. Again, that's an Old Testament reference to the ceremonial laws that were taking place there. And then he says, hey, if you'll do that, there's some promises on the back end of that. Look at verse 18, the promises. What's he say there? He says, I'll welcome you. I'll be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me. Now, just everybody listen up, all right? There's some debate about what these things mean. Is he saying if you want a relationship with Jesus... And be a son or a daughter, then you've got to do these things in verse 17. Or is he saying if you are a follower of Christ and you don't do the hard choices in verse 17, then God will not welcome you as a son or daughter. You've lost your salvation. I don't think either one of those things uh, is what it means here. So what's it saying here? What he's saying is this. Those who truly belong to Jesus Christ will have a pattern of obedience in their life even in hard decisions, not, a, not perfection, but a pattern of obedience in their life, doing even hard things because they're deeply committed to Christ, doing the hard things of verse 17, those are the ones who give evidence of the fact that they're daughters and sons of the king, verse 18. And the reason that someone would make that incredibly difficult choice of separating from a Unequally relationship like verse 17 is, and here's the only reason why, I want you to listen to this. It's because a person becomes deeply convinced that being in right relationship with God will bring more satisfaction to our hearts, verse 18, than being in wrong relationships with those who aren't living for God, verse 17. You ever wonder why your kids sin? Everybody, it's me. You ever wonder why you sin? You don't, this is not rocket science, all right? Here's why. It's because you've yet to be fully convinced that the life God offers you will be more satisfying than the one you're pursuing. That's why. You've yet to be fully convinced that the life God offers you will be more satisfying than the one you're currently pursuing. And so why would a person Not sever these unwise relationships in the midst of all this counsel is because they've yet to be convinced that being in a right relationship with God will be more satisfying than being in a wrong relationship with those who aren't living for God. That's why. That's why. And so let me wrap this up with this counsel this morning. When it comes to your closest and deepest relationships, do not follow your heart. Instead, put your heart in the hands of the only friend who will never let you down and never lead you astray, and His name is Jesus. Would you bow your heads this morning? If your head bowed this morning, I just want to acknowledge the obvious thing this morning. That is a challenging passage of Scripture It is calling us to costly obedience. But make no mistake, friend, this will be, not be the last hard decision Jesus asks you to make in your life if you're following Him. That's why He says count the cost. That's why He says take up your cross and deny yourself if you want to be my disciple. And so this morning, I want to ask something very specific. As we've taught through these truths in Scripture, is there a relationship or relationships that come to mind in your life that you know you need to make a hard decision? Not to isolate yourself, but maybe to separate yourself from this being a deep, intimate, important relationship in your life. If that's you and you're here this morning, I want to pray specifically for you. And this isn't just a message for teenagers. This is for all of us in the room this morning. If you're here this morning, say, hey, that's me. I've got some hard decisions to make and quite frankly, I'm scared. Would you just raise your hand up so I can pray for you specifically Anybody like that say, hey, that's me, amen. Anybody else? Yeah, several. Let me just pray for you this morning. God, I pray for all those that raise their hands and those who maybe should have, but to even acknowledge they've got a hard choice in front of them is, is a difficult and scary thought. God, I pray, number one, that every person in here would be reminded that we don't have the ability to make these hard decisions apart from Christ at work in us. And this is not about willpower or personal discipline. And so, Lord, we yield ourselves to the power of the Holy Spirit, living Spirit-filled or Spirit-controlled lives. And so, Lord, in the power of the Spirit, give people wisdom about conversations that need to happen, how and when, give people wisdom about relationships that don't need to be cut off but need to be changed in regards to the importance in our lives. God, help us to be humble and gentle and motivated by love and not to be Pharisees and judgmental. That at the end of the day, people would see our greatest desire is to glorify Jesus in our lives. And so, Lord, may we never fail to love all men, all women, all relationships in our lives. But may we also never fail to live for the glory of Jesus alone. We pray all these things in Jesus' name because we can. Amen.